God's word. The message today is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Your Pew Bible, Red Pew Bible, is 681. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. May God add a blessing to his word. You may be seated. So last week we started this uh, little mini-series within our our, uh, series of Revealed. God has revealed light into darkness through the birth of his son. And and we're looking at historically a couple different characters. And last week we talked a little bit about Caesar Augustus. Uh, we looked at Christmas as being a lot more than just a, a, a nice story. Christmas is just a lot is a lot more than just this little baby being born in this little manger, and 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 it was just this cute little thing. But Christmas is a major revolution that demands our attention. Christmas is actually huge. It's actually life changing and is world changing. From that moment, the world changed, and nothing had been the same ever since. We looked at Caesar Augustus and how the world already had a Lord and Savior. The world already had this guy whose birthday was Advent. His empire was salvation. 
There was a gospel of Caesar, and they had ecclesias or churches that worshipped the god of Caesar, Augustus. And then this little baby came on the scene, and this angel Gabriel proclaimed a new gospel. This angel Gabriel proclaimed a new savior, a new peace, a real peace, and that sets the stage for this huge, massive power struggle. And today we kind of pick up the story with Herod. Because Herod was one of the agents of Rome. Herod was kind of this, um, well, he was a brown noser, really, to Caesar. Um, have you guys ever worked in an office and there's the one guy who's like, hey, can I get you coffee? Um, that's, that's Herod, although he was brutal and repressive and things like that. Anyways, there's this part of the Christmas story that we totally miss when we don't see the, the, the revolution behind it. We, we kind of miss it. I love the Christmas carols, um, although some of them I make fun of, like the one I, I made fun of last week, and, and um, I don't even know what that Christmas carol is called, A Child, A Child Shivering in the Night. Anybody? Let us bring him silver and gold. Have, do, do you hear what I hear? There we go. Well, do you? Um, anyways, um, we don't necessarily catch the scandal of, of Christmas. These two teenagers... A pregnant teenager at that, um, hiding. She's kind of hiding the fact that they're not married, and, and Joseph was going to leave her, but but yet he he made her honest, and and it was revealed by God that he should stay with her and, and stuff like that. We don't necessarily capture that scandal, but this is an absolute scandalous thing. I mean, if we were to look at the L.A. Times that that came to your doorstep this morning, and you opened it up, and you're like, pregnant teenager. Um, 14 years old, claims to be the mother of, of the Messiah. You'd be like, yeah, right, right? I mean, you'd be like, that's another psycho. Um, and you'd probably toss it. Um, but we don't necessarily catch the scandal of this story. This is a huge, huge deal. So I want to just look at a couple of things here. So right off what, from what Marilyn um, had read, Matthew chapter 2, just the first couple of verses, and then we're going to And then we're going to dive right into this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who had been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Then it says, When Herod heard of this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. So why would Herod be disturbed? And why would all of Israel and all of Um, Jerusalem, really, be disturbed with Herod that there is this birth of a Savior. You'd think that this is an awesome event, that you'd be really excited. These people from the East came, and who are these people? But they came to see the birth of a Savior. You would think that this is an exciting time, but yet they were disturbed. They were scared a little bit, and it makes total sense. If you knew anything about Jewish history, you know that King Herod called himself the king of the Jews. And so any threat to that power, so a boy, a baby being born king of the Jews, would have been absolutely threatening to his power. It would have threatened everything. Um, in In actuality, Herod was simply a puppet of Rome. So Rome was, Caesar Augustus was in charge, but really he held these little strings and, and told Herod what to do. And let me give you a little bit of history. So for, in 40 years um, before the Common Era, so in 40 BCE, uh, Rome wanted a buffer to the entire Middle East because it was unstable. And they installed this leader, Herod, king of the Jews. They installed him as leader, and, but it was not easy to conquer. 
Palestine has never been that way, I guess. So since the Jews didn't see him as a leader, they gave Herod legions and legions of armies, entire legions, so that he could conquer Israel. It took Herod three years to conquer Israel. And that three-year campaign ended with one of the most atrocious, brutal things ever done. It ended in Jerusalem, the walls were breached, and the Romans massacred almost like the entire city. In fact, they crucified people on the way up to the city. So on your entrance to the, the Jerusalem, you would have seen revolutionaries being um, hanging there, crucified, on the entrance to the city. This is how Herod came to power. So any threat to Herod's power, if you lived in Jerusalem, you would be greatly disturbed. You'd be like, no, 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 let that guy just do his thing because he's going to kill all of us. Herod was a psycho. He would do absolutely anything to stay in power. Herod had ten wives, which I'm told is a lot to handle. Does anybody here watch, <laughs> does anybody watch Sister Wives? I just, my wife and I TiVo it, and I'm kind of even almost ashamed to say this, but we watch it every like, Sunday night when we come home from church. And <laughs> I know, and I'm like, who is this guy? How does he have four wives and like 30 children? But anyways, he had ten wives. Um, a lot to handle. His favorite wife was Miriam. It was the second of ten wives. Herod would leave on trips to Rome, and there was a standing order to kill Miriam if any threat was made on his own life, because he knew that if, if any threat was made on his life, it was because of Miriam, because, you see, he actually kind of um, took her and um, forced her to be married to him, and he loved her, but the feeling wasn't exactly mutual. And uh, so there was a standing order to kill Miriam because of his jealousy. He knew that she would want be the one behind the murder plot. So that he wouldn't have to deal with all that in a fit of jealousy because he didn't think that she loved him um, and that she may have loved somebody else. He ended up drowning her in his swimming pool. Nice guy, right? Um, not only did he kill her, but he killed her father, her mother, and his three favorite sons. He drowned the high priest um, and his family in his family swimming pool. Kind of nice, right? Um, there were a couple of military leaders who questioned Herod's wisdom in killing his own family. They were killed along with 300 of their fellow officers and family members. Herod was so worried about whether or not there would be mourning on the day of his death that there was a standing order to invite all these noble people of all of Israel to come to a stadium. And at the moment of his death, archers would fire on them so that if, if there was no mourning for him, at least there would be mourning in all of Israel because all these noble people would have died. Luckily, we have historical records that say that Herod's son and daughter actually stopped this. And that didn't actually happen, but th that was the order. That, um, at the time of his death, so that he wanted mourning even if it wasn't for him. So not only did he do all this stuff, but he had a secret place. He had informers. He had everything. It would have felt like a Gestapo. It would have felt like um, living in a communist society under Herod. It would have been entirely restrictive. You would have had no idea whether or not you were being informed on. Because any hint of another person of power would have been a threat to Herod. Right? Any hint. So this little baby being born king of the Jews would have been a massive, massive problem. 
But he wasn't just entirely crazy. I mean, he was a psycho. Psycho may not be a strong enough word for this guy. He was entirely crazy. He had a huge ego. But he also, like I said, was kind of a brown noser to this guy, Caesar Augustus. He built an entire city in tribute to Caesar called Caesarea. In fact, they poured underwater concrete to build this port, a technology that was lost for thousands of years. Actually, about, um, I think, 1,200 years after the port of Caesarea was built, the technology was completely lost until they had to rediscover it. For thousands of years, or for a thousand or so years, they said, how in the world did they pour underwater concrete in Caesarea? But they eventually figured it out and stuff like that. So the man was actually a prolific builder as well. There was a really, the largest port in the world at the time was in Athens, but he said, no, 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 no. it needs to be even bigger, and I'm going to do it here in, in Caesarea. Um, the entire city was built by this man. There was a rock plateau called Masada out in the desert, and Masada is commonly thought of as the place where King David fled when he fled from um, King Saul. It was commonly thought of that he lived there, and he hid out with all of his mighty men there. Well, Herod said, if your greatest king, if the greatest king of Israel lived there in poverty, I will live there in absolute lavishness and wealth. And so he did. He rebuilt that. There was a 10.5 million gallon cistern of water um, excavated at this place. This is in the middle of the desert. You know, and this guy built all this. He, built, uh, he rebuilt the temple, which we're talking about in a second. He rebuilt and built and built and built and built. And you wonder, who paid for all of this? The Jews did. The people living under his rule. So the people, Mary and Joseph, they paid for all this. A common estimate of the day is that 80 to 90% of what you made went out the door in taxes to the construction of the temple, to the priesthood, to Caesar, and to Herod. The community of people could not stand this guy. So here Herod is saying, I'm your greatest king. I'm going to live here in Masada um, in luxury while your greatest king lived in poverty. I'm actually your greatest king. Herod built a stadium that so far we've unearthed 390,000 seats of. Does anybody know how many seats are in the Rose Bowl? Anybody? Bueller? 90,000. Okay, some of you got the Ferris Bueller reference. Thank you. 90,000 seats are in the, um, the Rose Bowl, and so far we've unearthed 390,000 of these seats. He tried to win back the Jews by rebuilding the temple. He used 2.3 million stones weighing thousands of tons each in this huge, glorious temple. In fact, in 2007, the quarry in which he took these stones were, was excavated, and, and they found where he got all these stones for the temple. A little later, the disciples were walking by the temple, commenting on how grand and beautiful it was, and Jesus simply said, I tell you, not one stone will stand upon the other, which was a huge, huge statement at that time. Herod decided that the people might revolt against him because he was such a brutal leader, and he was probably right. And he didn't want that to happen, and so he wanted to build himself a fortress, which was recently excavated in 2007. And this place is called Herodium. And Herodium was this giant mountain in which there was a swimming pool that's four times larger than an Olympic standard-sized swimming pool. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff in this, and this is where they found his body and where he's buried. But the interesting thing about it is that he wanted a fortress in this exact location so that 
he could oversee all the city. But the problem was there were no mountains there. And so he had an entire team of slaves in forced labor go to the desert, take a mountain, and move it to where he wanted. Some experts say that when Jesus was standing on the Mount of Olives saying that, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. He was actually referring to Herodium, saying, this is what this guy did by brute force and brute power, but this is, I tell you the truth, but by faith in me, you can do far greater things. Some of the, people, some of the scholars think that that's exactly what he was saying. So let's continue the story. So I'm just going to read, even though Marilyn did it so beautifully, I'm going to re-read through this because hopefully you'll see this with a little bit of different eyes. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Can you understand now why all of Jerusalem would be disturbed with him? I would be. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and in Judah, they replied, for it is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, by no means are least among the rulers of Judea. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report him to me so that I may go and worship him. After, they'd heard the, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it was stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with, with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. They opened the treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, incense, and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I will call my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill the boys in Bethlehem and his vicinity, who were two years and old and under in accordance with the, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet of Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard from Ramah, Weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now the death of the innocents or the, the killing of the slaughtering of these boys, um, two years and younger, actually the only re- historical recorded spot is in the Bible. But scholars do not refute that this ever happened because of how crazy Herod was. And the fact that there might have only been... Um, 20 or so children that, that were killed in Bethlehem that were two years or under. I mean, the number could have been very small um, because of all the revolts and things like that. There was likely that there wasn't a whole lot of small children around. And so there, this wasn't this massive widespread killing, but rather localized. And so that's probably one of the reasons why it wasn't recorded in history because Herod did far worse things. And this would have been just a little deal for Herod. 
So can you see how this is totally consistent with the rule of Herod, though? Any threat to his rule, any threat to his power would be stomped out immediately. But why? Why? We're going to flip around the Bible a little bit, and we're going to land in a spot. So flip with me to Genesis chapter 25. We'll have the verses on the screen. Genesis 25, we need to learn a little bit of the backstory before we get into what does this all mean for us? Why does the birth of this child bring about so much change and so much uh, revolution? Why should we act any differently because 2,000 years ago, this child lived and was born? Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. So as many of you know, there's a, Abraham was, had this promise made to him by God that he would one day be a great nation. And he had a child named Isaac. And God told him to go sacrifice Isaac. And eventually he provided a ram and another way out. And so Isaac comes to being and he, this promise falls on him now. But his wife is getting old and, and he doesn't have any children. And so he's wondering, God, how can this be with me in all of this? So 25 verse 19. This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he was married to Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Armenian from Padam Aram, the sister of Laban the Armenian. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled with each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went and inquired of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the younger, I'm sorry, the older will serve the younger. So do you get, God said, it's not just two babies in here. It's not just two children. You actually have two nations from within you. Let's keep reading. When the time came, this is verse 24, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first came out and was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, and he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So, we all know the story of Abraham, how he had this great promise, and, and how it all kind of trickled down to Isaac, and he had these kids, and Rebecca was barren, and things like that. So God allows these people to be pregnant, gives them um, fertility, and then all of a sudden, there's two nations from within. Edom, or Esau, which became the nation of the Edomites, and Jacob which actually became the nation of Israel, Jacob, Israel, and where Jesus came out of. Now, the interesting part here is the prophecies that relate to this. Now, we know that Jesus was born, there was um, all these hundreds of prophecies that said, Jesus will be born here, Jesus will be born by a virgin, Jesus will be born this and this and that. One of them is that, that Jacob will crush Esau. And that's all through the Old Testament. And we don't necessarily read it, but the interesting thing is that Herod happened to be an Edomite. Herod happened to be out of the line of Esau. And Jesus happened to be out of the line of Jacob. So let's keep going here. Um, Numbers chapter 24, and this is, I think, going to be up on the screen as well. Numbers 24, starting in verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. 
A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Seth. Edom will be conquered. So somewhere along the line, Herod must have known some of these prophecies. I mean, because the Magi came, they saw this star, and he said, tell me where it is. He must have known a little bit. And in fact, he was a convert to Judaism, but he was really an Edomite. And, and so he must have known a little bit. Turn with me to Obadiah chapter 1, and I'm sure many of you were probably just studying Obadiah this morning in your, your devotions because you're all so devoted to the Lord. Uh, Obadiah chapter 1, this entire book is just really one chapter. You could read it over lunch. Um, this entire book of Obadiah is directly related to Jacob versus Edom, or Israel versus the Edomites. Verse 10. I'm just going to read a couple of the verses. Because of their violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. Talking to the Edomites. Verse 17. Verse 17, here it is. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And, and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. Verse 21. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion and govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. These prophecies, and in this time where Herod the Edomite was ruling over the land that belonged to the descendants of Jacob. And during this time, there's the birth of another one of the sons, because if we go all the way back now to Matthew chapter 1, and then we're going to talk about why this matters, I promise. You're all going to care after this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah, and so on and so forth. All the way down to... Um, and, uh, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who was born Jesus, who's called the Christ. So we see this immense power struggle. When you go to Matthew chapter 2 and you read about a star that's guiding people to the Messiah and to Bethlehem, the reason why Herod was so willing to murder all those babies is that he knew that he was not legitimate. He knew that he was not the king of the Jews. He knew that the true king had been born. And we never really picture this on Christmas cards, do we? I mean, right? It's not like Norman Rockwell was like, hmm, I wonder if we'd paint the massacre. No, we don't picture that on Christmas cards. It wasn't exactly a silent night, a holy night. Although, it's a great song, and the words are powerful to these Christmas songs. They don't really capture what was going on. They don't really capture these prophecies. This is all fascinating. But what does this have to do with us? And I think three things. One, Jesus Christ always has been and always will be a threat to what the world stands for. In the best possible way. Jesus is a threat to, the world, to what our world stands for. They don't crucify nice guys. He wasn't Mr. Rogers. You know, the, the point is this. In, in our culture, sometimes it's wrong to say, like, Merry Christmas or, or God be with you. Activities are being taken down. Um, people don't want to remember that there's two kingdoms, that there's two battles happening here. They don't want to be, have to be forced to choose. People want their nice buffet of religious belief. But Jesus is a threat to everything, and that's why people don't want to talk about him. Here's what I think we've done with the birth of Jesus to some extent. 
It's like saying, now I went to um, Maui a couple years back with my family. And it's like if I were to come back to you and say, you know, it's really just some water and some trees and some sand. You know what I mean? And then you go to Maui, and then you see how beautiful and gorgeous it is, and you want to come back and smack me because you're like, no, it's so much more. There's fish jumping. There's dolphins. There's whales. It's incredible. There's volcanoes going off. It is gorgeous. You're missing it. And I think that's what we've done with Christmas sometimes. It's say, like, oh, yeah, it's just a story about a Jesus, uh, just a baby being born, and yeah, 2,000 years ago, no big deal. But it really, in reality, it's so much more than that. It is God inviting us into this revolution. It is God inviting us to be utterly different than the rest of the world. It is God inviting us into the way of life that totally is counter to what our world says is good. It's loving our enemies. It's praying for those who persecute you. I mean, it's these little things. It's, it's, it's getting um, married and, and really working at it and just trying to decide to, to stay that way, you know? I mean, I know that's kind of hard sometimes here in our culture, but, but our, our um, church needs to look like something different. We need to embody the alternative to the rest of the world. It's not just some nice story full of hope and things like that and a bundle of joy. Scripture teaches us that this is an absolute revolution that each of you are invited into. So what do we do with this piece of information? C.S. Lewis was once asked, and this guy is so witty, I love C.S. Lewis. He was once asked, how would you defend the gospel? And he said this, the same way that I'd defend a lion, I'd let it out of its cage. And I think that that's what we need to be like this Christmas season. How would you defend Jesus? What are you going to be like? Well, I'm simply going to let Jesus out of the cage. Whatever barrier I've built up to not share Jesus, whatever barrier I've built up to not be Christ to the rest of the world, we just need to tear those barriers down and let Jesus be Jesus in our lives. And I think that's one of the things the Christmas story has us do. I find myself putting him in a cage whenever I add or take away from the gospel, whenever I add or take away from the threat. So too many of us put Jesus in a box and we simply need to let Jesus be Jesus in our lives. Jesus, the, number three, Jesus never critiqued anything around him as bad. He simply offered something better. And I wonder as a church and as, as people here in this church, do we offer something better? When people are, are gossiping and trash-talking around the water cooler or at Starbucks or whatever the new water cooler is, and when people are doing that, do we offer something better? When, when people are tearing other people down, do we build other people up? Do we offer something better? I just wonder, how are we doing that? Jesus always invited something to, better, to something better. He didn't say, hey, Herod stinks, Herod's bad, Herod's the worst. He said, hey, forgiveness is the answer. This is something better. He didn't say revolt against Herod and tear him down and use swords. He said, forgive your enemies and, and pray for those who persecute you. I mean, he offered something better. It's not power, it's sacrifice. The Christmas story doesn't condemn the world and say it's bad. The Christmas story points to, to a new way, a new different way that is a different kingdom that is better. What do we do with Herods around us? I mean, because they're around us. The Herods are everywhere around us. What do we do? 
We offer something better. The world sometimes look at, looks at the church. I mean, this is, a, this is utterly fascinating to me. The world looks at the church and says some people have become worse people for following Jesus. The world thinks that we've become narrow-minded and bigoted. And the world actually makes moral arguments against the church. Can, I mean, does that make sense? But it, is, that's what happens. So how are we offering something better to this world that desperately needs Jesus? What does Christmas mean? Why study Herod? Why study Caesar? First, Jesus came to start a revolution. Nobody gives themselves to Herod's kingdom. Nobody gives themselves to, to Caesar's kingdom. They're forced to be part of those kingdoms. But Jesus is simply here saying, come with me. Walk in my footsteps. Walk with me through this. Our job as a community is to let Jesus be Jesus and simply to get out of the way. Our job through Jesus, is, through his power and grace, is to somehow live like he lived. For me, it's sometimes loving people who don't love me. For me, it's praying for people who persecute me. For me, it's forgiving those who, who are just hard to forgive. That's what the revolution is like for me. Maybe for you, it's reconciling with a family member this Christmas season and saying, just because of what Jesus did for me, I feel like you and I really need to reconcile this. Maybe it's, maybe it's something like that. I'm not entirely sure. Maybe it's somebody at work. Maybe it's somebody at home. Maybe it's a child that you haven't seen in a while. Maybe it's something along those lines. But maybe that's where the revolution stems. It's not too far out there. It's not hard to grasp. It's right within your grasp. You were supposed to be a threat in the best way possible because you're letting Jesus utterly out of the cage that you have him in your life. I want to invite Lindy and the band up um, because we're going to sing this song one more time. We're going to sing the first Noel. And I just want to invite you to see the revolution in this song. I want to invite you to see this Savior where this star had been placed over him, and there's really this two colossal battles that happened. And yet Jesus invites you into this revolution. I want to invite you to sing with us.
Send us out this week as we go. Father, send us to be light into a world of darkness. Father, send us to show your son off to the rest of this world to offer something better. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.